got a bulletin on the way and there's an outline in that and you can grab it. We are in 2 Timothy, started a little series through the letter that Paul wrote, the last letter that Paul wrote, uh, entitled 2 Timothy in Your Bibles. This past week we had a we had a uh, visitor in our neighborhood that I have never seen before. Shell and I were coming back from dinner and went to pull in our driveway and right there at the end of our driveway was this critter that was waddling along kind of in our driveway. I had to wait for him to move into the neighbor's yard before we could actually pull in. Um, and uh, I got a picture if my thing, there we go. Yeah, the picture isn't the greatest. Uh, I'll give you a closer one here in just a minute. But um, he, you know, he slowly went into the, to the neighborhood. So I stopped. I was just shocked to see it's a porcupine. If you can't tell from the picture, but this porcupine, uh, you know, walking right through my neighbor's yard, right there next to the driveway. And you're a little bit hesitant even to get out, you know, because there's some security knowing there's a metal door between you and uh, that little guy. But he just kept going. He seemed totally unfazed by us or anybody else. And so just kept wandering through yards and up the sidewalk. And so I walked up the street and stood on the other side of the street to take the picture. That's why it's, you know, kind of zoomed in so far. You know, I don't know how far they can really shoot those real little pricklers. But, you know, I had in my, my mind Spider-Man, you know, <laughs> doing the whole thing. And one of those things come flying across the street to nail me. And so, you know, I stayed as far away as I could. My neighbor got an even closer picture. Uh, yeah, that, that's the backside of the little guy. That's he was at the fence by the elementary school. But it was interesting to watch this little thing just sort of waddle along, you know, trudging slowly, nonchalantly, unfazed by anybody else. You know, maybe it's because he knows he's armed and dangerous and nobody's going to mess with him. But uh, just sort of wandering up the street. Uh, if you would, and, and even in that first picture, you know, the needles are all laying back, and the way I took the picture almost looks like fur. It doesn't really look like needles. Um, you know, if, if you just didn't know better, that critter just seems completely harmless. But we all know different, right? That's why I was wanting to stay in the car as long as I could, the other side of the street. Because that thing, you know, might look harmless, might look like couldn't do any damage to anybody at all. Um, but they can do a lot of damage if you get too close or, or cross them in the wrong way. And I thought how it is very similar to the world that we live in. Our world may feel somewhat harmless because, you know, you live through, you live through changes happening. You live through the things that are transpiring in our world. And because we live through it, it happens slowly, sort of uh, seems somewhat uh, harmless. You don't notice the danger in some of those things. But there is a level of perplexity in the world today, even spiritual peril, that as Christians we need to be awake to need to be alert to because it is a dangerous time. It is an increasingly challenging time to be faithful to live for God. And I'm thankful that there's books in the Bible, there's sections of the Bible that address how to navigate that. Because this isn't the first time, though it is maybe for us as we you know, look back on the history of our lives, we think how hard and how the world has changed so much in our lifetimes. But um, this isn't the first time that there has been spiritual peril for those that are followers of Christ. Um, in AD 66, when the Apostle Paul picked up his pen to write to his young friend Timothy, it was very much a perilous time to be a Christian. 
the world was at the front edge of an intense season of opposition towards Christianity. And the next few years uh, would see the lives snuffed out of all but one of those original disciples that we walked through the Gospel of Luke, seeing their experiences. And it would also see the death of the late arriver, the, the Apostle Paul himself. Uh, the Roman Emperor Nero was on the throne and was a madman in pretty much every way you use that word. Uh, he ramped up persecution of Christianity throughout the empire to levels never seen before. And Timothy lived in that. In fact, Timothy was trying to pastor a church in the middle of that, in a metropolis. Um, and it was hard. But I think you probably recognize this from your own life story. Sometimes hard uh, crystallizes focus. It helps us see what matters the most and reminds us of the need for grace. And the section that we come to today, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, you can find that with me. The sections we come to today really highlight those themes. I called this today Grace Needed. Uh, because Paul starts right out with that opening line. He focuses on that. And I do think it colors everything that follows. But also it's just that reminder. When life is hard and when you're in a difficult world, when it's difficult, when it's a challenge to represent God well, you can't do it on your own. Grace is needed. Grace is needed to be who God wants you to be. Now, if you've got the Bible there, um, let's, uh, the first verse, he says this, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That opening statement sets the stage for the remainder of what he's going to say. Um, Paul appeals to Timothy as a father would to his son. He really viewed him that way. To be strong. But it wasn't, you know, have this inner manly strength, you know, just stir it up inside and, and uh, get the adrenaline going. It wasn't that. He says, be strong. Be strong in the grace that's found in your relationship with Christ Jesus. Grace is such an important word throughout the whole New Testament. Uh, and at its core, grace simply means a gift. Something given to us by God despite the fact that we don't deserve His gracious gift in any way. It's a word often connected to, relating to our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, and so nobody can boast. You are saved, I am saved, because God offers this free gift to us. Salvation is a gift offered by God, appropriated through faith in Christ. For you or me to be forgiven of our sin, to be saved from what our sin deserves, which is an eternity in hell. Jesus had to remedy the just punishment on your account, what your account deserves. Jesus had to remedy that by dying on a cross in your place. He paid for the gift of your salvation. He offers it now to us freely by grace. Salvation is all of grace. It's a gift of God's grace. But so is strength to live in a hard world. Um, God promises grace sufficient for every need as you live in a hard world. And I think of the well-worn words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. And some of you maybe remember this, where he very transparently described his struggles personally. Uh, he, he faced some issue, some perplexing problem. Maybe it was physical, maybe it was of some other nature. But for Paul, it was his thorn in the flesh, was his descriptive terminology of that. 
And you know, Paul just frankly says, you know, I begged God three times to take this out of my life. And this is what God said. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. God's word to Paul, to us, is my grace is enough. And whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, my grace is enough. I'll give you what you need to endure through the hard. In fact, God's power is amplified, it's highlighted when we depend on Him for grace in the seasons where we struggle, that we just can't handle it on our own. Um, Paul knew how deeply he had leaned into the grace of God to make it through the challenging times in his life. And he wants the same for Timothy. And he wants the same for us. The challenge is the same uh, for you and me. Uh, how do you navigate life? Uh, how do you make it through the hard? You know, Paul... Uh, Paul knew that for him, right then, he's in prison. He knows that the end of his story is fast approaching, fast coming to the finish line. Um, and he had leaned into the grace of God. He wants him to grab that lesson. Depend on the grace that's found in Jesus Christ. There's strength there to do hard things. Um, there, it is there that you'll find the ability to navigate the hard things. And again, that's just the opening line. But it leads into what I want to sort of unpack with you, three things. Um, three important but sometimes difficult aspects of Christian living. Here's the first one. Discipleship. Shaping the next generation to know and follow Jesus. Verse 1 again. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. What Paul outlines there is a key strategy for how our church, for churches like ours, are supposed to function and accomplish their mission. What you've learned, teach others. Um, who then, in turn, teach others. Kind of like links in a chain. One leads to the other. One generation impacts the next one. As you learn and grow and are changed through God's grace, through this relationship with Jesus, through digesting His Word, as that happens to you, realize that's not the end of the story. Other people need that. Especially the next generation needs that. Uh, take what you've learned and invest it in the lives of other competent, reliable people with the challenge that they would carry that mission forward. I think it's a great picture of how discipleship should happen. We have this vision statement that we've operated by for a long time here that our, our, our vision as a church is to make disciples of Jesus who worship, link, learn, and serve. Uh, that defines what we're here to do. But that statement, that vision, is one that perpetually needs to be re-pursued, re-pursued, re-pursued. Um, because it will not be finished until Jesus Christ comes back. Uh, there will always be people that need to be reached and then who need to grow at becoming what a disciple looks like. And there will always be, I hope, a next generation around here uh, growing to the age of uh, where they begin to understand, see their need, and then are reached with the gospel themselves. I love that we got to dedicate little Kyra Ann this morning. Uh, she is tiny and precious and such a blessing, but she's also emblematic of the fact that the next generation is arriving. 
the next generation is arriving. I have stood up here and prayed over a lot of babies in the past 20 years. A couple of them are graduating from high school this year, and that really makes me feel old. Um, many of them have become entries on my list of praises at some point when they made a decision to put their faith in Jesus in Awana or Vacation Bible School or Calvary Teens or with their mom or dad at home. And then they tracked me down in the hallway outside my office to tell me that. Those will always be highlights for me to remember. But that is also just the beginning of shaping the next generation to know and follow Jesus. Leading them to respond to the gospel is just the beginning. It's just the start of making disciples. Um, and, to me, the greatest and most precious opportunity to make disciples is found as a parent and as a grandparent. Uh, last week, um, our daughter-in-law sent me a little video of Ada, our three-year-old. As she stood in the living room of their home holding a guitar, true it was sideways, but she was holding a guitar like Grandpa, and she was singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And it brought a huge smile to my face. Uh, she learned that at her church. But she also learned it because her dad learned it when he was her age. And her grandpa learned it and her Mimi learned it when they were her age. Previous generations have been shaped by that grace-giving truth. Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible told me. The Bible tells me about that. And you know, parenting is passing that on. It is passing that on. You have probably heard the phrase that I don't know whether it's really uh, accurate based on God's sovereignty, but that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction. Uh, I don't think God would ever let that happen. But you understand the concept communicated there. That it's only as parents raise their kids in the nurture and admission of the Lord that Christianity continues to move forward. And it's as we prioritize that as parents and we shape our children to know and follow Jesus. Making disciples of Jesus from the earliest days. Parenting is not easy. Working with teenagers or kids is not easy. Effectiveness in both calls for help. But remember how we started this? Verse 1, God gives strength. God's grace provides all we need to parent well, to do ministry well that shapes the next generation. And so I would challenge you, wherever you find yourself in that parenting, grandparenting, investment in the, young, the next generation and ministries here, ask for grace often. God will give that. He will. So that's one. The second area where grace is needed is being a person of discipline. Verse 3. Uh, he said, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. That second phrase I put on there is discipline. We need grace to, to uh, have discipline in our lives, but especially discipline in this direction, aiming to please God and do His will above all else. You know, the opening line of verse 3 is one that most people would not be interested in hearing. Paul writes to Timothy, Join me in suffering. Uh, join me in suffering. 
No one really looks for that in their lives. Nobody cherishes, hey, you know, here's an opportunity for me to suffer. None of us uh, are interested in pursuing that. Uh, but Paul was experiencing suffering, and Paul was a realist. He, he could see the world he lived in, and he knew that Timothy was going to face hard times. Uh, he was in jail. Uh, he was paying a steep price. And the price tag was even going to go higher uh, very soon in Paul's life. And he didn't sugarcoat it with Timothy. And Jesus didn't either. Jesus told his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. Um, but he doesn't leave us alone in that. In fact, grace is sufficient to be disciplined, to navigate, and to even live in a, a culture that's crazy in a way that pleases our Heavenly Father. Um, you know, persecution is a big word. I'm not sure we fully grasp that uh, in our society. Uh, it is an increasingly hostile world uh, in which being a Christian is mocked and minimized and marginalized. But I don't know that we're at the place of suffering for identification with Jesus yet. That might change. It changed very quickly in the first century uh, for the disciples. But for Paul and Timothy, you know, that was the word. That was staring them right in the face. They were experiencing persecution. And, and so Paul challenges Timothy, if you're going to get through this, you need God's grace to be disciplined. And to highlight that, he gives three illustrations. The first is of a soldier. And maybe more than any other occupation, a soldier is immersed in that, their identity as a soldier. Uh, they, the military takes everything away from you, so you really can't be too distracted by anything else. You don't even know too much else that's happening in the earliest days. But, but it was the same in Paul's day. And Paul mentions how a soldier doesn't allow himself to be distracted by civilian affairs, what's happening outside his sphere of focus. He has one purpose, and he has one mission, to obey, and as a result, to please his commanding officer. And I find that a really helpful illustration. That is quite much a goal for us if we're going to live disciplined lives in this world. How do I please my Heavenly Father? How do I please God? Um, our aim, our highest pursuit is to please God and do His will. Uh, Paul wrote the same kind of thing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. He said, so we make it our goal to please Him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. Paul was talking in that context about how he uh, didn't know how long he was going to live. But his point is, it doesn't matter whether I live or die. I want to please God. I want to please God in my life. We make it our goal, our highest aim, to please God and do His will. In counseling, I often use the question that uh, people don't necessarily want to hear, but yeah, how can you please God in what you're going through right now? Not how should the other person please God, or not how should this problem be changed uh, to please God. How can you, in the way you navigate, in the way you respond, and things you say, how can you please God in what you're in right now? Um, like I said, that's not the lens most people want to look through. You know, we come to the pastor so he'll fix my spouse or so he'll, you know, talk to that other person for me. Um, but it's, it's quite, quite a bit focused right in, in the mirror. How do you please God? How will you please God? And what you've going, got going on in your life right now. Um, it's valid to ask that over and over again. How do I please God in this situation? And the answer won't be by following your heart or doing what feels right or even finding what makes you happy because sometimes those aren't part of the answer. Um, but it will be every time discovered by going to what God's written in His book and, and being committed to obey. 
that requires the discipline to read the determination to do, but it's worth it. We don't naturally want to obey God, please God. In fact, our culture kind of recoils against that idea. This past Tuesday, Pastor Curtis and I were at a pastor's meeting over Mount Pleasant. And it's uh, for our association, and, and the group has been at the meetings uh, working through a book together, some discussion points. But this particular chapter in the book was about God's sovereignty. And the author made a statement that I really found compelling. He was quoting somebody who had come from, uh, come from uh, England to the United States way back in the 60s. Uh, and uh, was involved in ministry here. But his observation was that in America, people have a built-in allergy to sovereignty. Now, if that was true in the 1960s, it's even more accurate in our culture today. There seems to be a built-in allergy, this instinctive reaction against any authority over me, anybody else telling me what to do. Anybody else having control uh, that I do not have control of? Um, our world says, I define what's best for me. I make my choices. I decide what's true, what's not true. The Bible brings a very different awareness. Um, the Bible brings the, the message that God is the sovereign authority over us all. God is the one who created it all and God is the one in charge of it all. God is the one that we must come to know on His terms, not ours. And as followers of God, we need the discipline to say, you know what the most important thing in my life is I want to please God. I want to please God. Um, that's somewhat unnatural. But you tie it back to the beginning, verse 1. And you'll remember, God promises grace. He'll give you strength to obey and please God if you're serious about that. So there was the soldier. The next picture is that of an athlete. Anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The Olympic Games had their origin right in that era when Paul was writing. Uh, and in order to win the victor's crown, an athlete could not just do whatever they wanted. They had to play by the rules. It's still that way. You pick the sport, whether it's football or basketball or baseball or volleyball or track. For every single one of those, there's a stringent set of rules. And you don't get the prize at the end unless you compete by the rules. Um, operate within those guidelines. And um, is a tremendous picture of discipline. A soldier seeks to please the one in charge. An athlete seeks to play by the rules that the one in charge set up. We need help to do that. The last image is that of a farmer. Some of you have first-hand experience with farming. Um, and so you understand that picture very well. Farming only works a certain way, right? If you want to grow crops, you have to follow the progression of seed and sun and pray for a lot of rain, which hasn't been coming lately. Uh, and then you find harvest. With raising animals is a part of farming. It only happens a certain way, following the steps built in by the Creator. There's a required structure to follow. If you plant seeds in October, you're not going to get too much of a harvest. It has to go the way the one who designed it all says it should go. And all those three things spin around the word discipline. It requires discipline in order to succeed. 
to be a farmer. It takes discipline in order to succeed as an athlete. It takes discipline in order to succeed as, as a soldier. And the thing about discipline is sometimes we just don't want to, right? We just don't want to do what we know we should do. Um, and in those don't want to moments, we have to ask for God's grace. God gives grace to provide the strength to do what is hard, to discipline yourself to obey, to do what brings a smile to the face of our Father in Heaven. Grace is needed to, dis to disciple the next generation. Grace is needed to discipline ourselves to obey our Heavenly Father. And the last one is this. Grace is needed to find deeper motivation. Deeper motivation by remembering, sharing, and being shaped by the Gospel. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul had a unique salvation story. You know, he encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus and was commissioned by him, totally transformed from that moment forward. He had a unique experience, a unique salvation story. But that's true for all of us, isn't it? Every one of us has a different story, a different uh, salvation experience. Timothy did, you do, I do. Um, and Paul challenges Timothy and he challenges us to constantly remember that. Remember the resurrected Jesus and how the gospel connected with your heart. Um, Paul was suffering because of the gospel. He preached to others. He'd taken the message to the whole known world around the Mediterranean rim. Uh, but now he was chained. And yet the gospel wasn't. The word of God was still spreading. It was probably spreading right in the jail there through Paul. Um, but he was willing to go through hard things by the grace of God if it meant sharing the gospel. But, but the way that I, I read his words and just think about his challenge to Timothy, you've got to keep remembering the gospel. You've got to keep remembering Jesus. You've got to keep remembering what he did for you. And the gospel is, in a very sense, my gospel, the way that he wrote it. It's personal. Um, we need to reconnect with the gospel often ourselves. You know, my story, despite being saved as a seven-year-old kid, I have to daily go back to the gospel, remind myself. Um, Jesus died for me. He was my only hope. I am who I am today because of Jesus and, who, and what he did. And the gospel is simple. You know, I think most of you know that, but I think it's pretty clear that the, the gospel is quite simple. We're all sinners. Jesus, the Son of God, died, was buried, and rose again uh, to remedy our sin problem. And we do nothing but believe in him to experience salvation. That's it. I don't deserve anything from God. Jesus is the one who did it all. You didn't deserve anything from God either. Jesus did it all. And he graciously offers salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. Remember that. Keep recalling that. When you're faced with temptation, it's a really good time to rethink the gospel. It'll give deeper motivation to do what he wants us to do. This is Memorial Day weekend. Um, and I know for... In our country, we tend to view that as an opportunity to uh, start the summer well, whether it's going camping or making a trip or something like that. But Memorial Day is a holiday intended to prod us to pause and reflect and be thankful for those who gave their lives so that we could do that. 
so we would have that kind of freedom that paid the individuals that paid the ultimate sacrifice a couple years ago I read a piece about um, the uh, the battle on Iwo Jima in World War II a rather uh, rather powerful uh, image to think about uh, on February 19, 1945, at 2 a.m., 2 in the morning, the first U.S. Marine landed on the Japanese island of Iwo Jima. That uh, tiny volcanic island covers a mere eight square miles. At the time, had a population of 1,018 people on it, mostly fishermen and their families. But the island would become the most infamous battleground of the Pacific effort of World War II. Iwo Jima uh, represented a strategic piece of land. It had two airstrips used by the Japanese to defend the mainland from the Allied raids. And America knew that if it was going to get an atomic bomb uh, to Japan to end the war, Iwo Jima had to be a stopping point, had to be secured. The Japanese realized that too, and so they fortified the island. Those 1,018 people were all evacuated and uh, were replaced by 21,000 soldiers, Japanese soldiers, to defend the island. And America had a decision to make. It's not as if Japan was just going to sell the island to them, right? Um, America knew those 21,000 soldiers would fight to the death, and so the decision came down to cost. What was it going to cost? to secure that island. And those in power made the calculation and sent those Marines in. One month later, only 216 Japanese soldiers had surrendered. The rest of the 21,000 were all dead. American deaths numbered 7,000 soldiers with some 20,000 casualties. And if you just calculate the uh, the lives lost, the total cost of Iwo Jima was the blood of nearly 28,000 men for one eight-mile island. It highlights, I think, how freedom, freedom that we take for granted as Americans, came at an enormous price. Freedom comes at a tremendous cost. And it's good to reflect on that as Americans. But you know what? It's good to reflect on that it's even more important to reflect on that as Christians. Not the soldiers that have gone before, but the Savior who went before. Spiritual freedom come, came to us, is offered to us at an enormous, enormous price tag. For salvation to be possible for you and for me, it would require the cost of every drop of blood from the Son of God Himself. Um, really think about that. God, who made everything, became a man and died giving every drop of his blood for you because of the things you've done in your life. My sin, my screw-ups, my rebellious choices, it cost God the Son every drop of his blood. If I'm aware of that, as I go through life, it will change the things that I do. It provides motivation to obey, to reach out to others, to make disciples of the next generation, aim to please God in every decision that I make. It really does change the way you look at life if you remember the gospel. Awareness of the cost will change the choices that you make. That's weighty stuff. The gospel is weighty stuff. 
Um, in fact, Paul closed the section with a rather weighty piece. Um, we read up through verse 10. He says in verse 11, here's a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. If we're faithless, though he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Identifying with Jesus' death brings life. Enduring the hardships of life for him brings future rewards. Disowning him will bring the same. But being faithless doesn't change his faithfulness. He will always be faithful to you. You can count on Jesus and his grace for salvation in every hard moment in life. So how do we apply all this? Got some quick uh, wrap-up thoughts, practical challenges for you and for me. Here's the first one. Continue to prioritize the making of disciples in the next generation because kids matter. Um, some of you probably heard this, uh, but Tim Keller passed away uh, a week ago, and it was rather interesting. I was in the process of reading a biography of his life that came out just earlier this year uh, when I read word of uh, Kim's, Tim's passing. Uh, Tim Keller's a Presbyterian, so I don't agree with all of his theology and everything that he writes, but um, my grandfather was a lifelong Presbyterian too, and I know he's going to be one of the first people waiting for me when I get to heaven one day. And then we can sort out whether he was right about the covenants and about the baptizing of babies and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, so I don't endorse necessarily everything that Tim Keller wrote or said. But he was one of the most profound writers and uh, communicators um, that I have enjoyed following over the years. In fact, he was rather instrumental in my thinking regarding the next season of our lives, my life and Shell's life. Um, this past Christmas, the original plan was that Shell was flying to Georgia to see her mom, and I was driving to New York to spend some time with my mother. And the blizzard of the century showed up, and we were stuck in Detroit for a couple days, and, and uh, finally got her on a plane. And it was Christmas Eve, that I was driving on very icy roads from Detroit to Indianapolis as Plan B, uh, that uh, I was listening to a lot of different podcasts that I enjoy listening to. And one of them, uh, the uh, host was interviewing Tim Keller. Uh, Tim was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer about four years ago. And as you would expect, somebody like that, you know, the, the obvious question that often gets tossed out is, well, what do you want your legacy to be? And it really, it really struck with, stuck with me because Tim thought for a minute and he said, you know, as, as far as legacies are, here's the thing. As long as my kids know that I love them and my grandchildren know that I love them, the rest can just sort itself out. The rest doesn't really matter. And, you know, here is a guy who was famous in evangelical circles, built a large church in the heart of Manhattan, wrote 15 books, started national and international organizations. What really matters when you get to the end is the spiritual impact you have on the next generation. My kids and my grandkids. And amid all the clutter of life right now, I really want to encourage you to think through that. Amid all the clutter of life, you know what's going to matter a million years from now? 
It's not whether you were able to buy that latest toy or go on that nice vacation. You know, it's going to matter a million years from now is whether your kids and your grandkids came to know and follow Jesus in their lives. And so, continue to prioritize making disciples in the next generation. Kids matter. Here's the second one. Expect hard. Following Jesus, if lived authentically, will never be easy, but it will always be worth it. Anybody face anything hard this week? <laughs> yeah, all of us. Uh, we all go through hard. Uh, yesterday I was getting text after text after text asking for prayer for some, something in, in somebody's life. It was just one of those kind of days. Hard happens all the time. Problems and pressures in life happen all the time. And sometimes they happen because we're committed to follow Jesus and live for Him. Expect that. But remember, in it, God's grace is sufficient. Lean on. Lean into that. Third one, remind yourself often of the gospel's impact in your life. There's no better motivation uh, for living a Jesus-driven life than reconnecting with your personal salvation story. I hope that you look back on your life and you know that you have a salvation story. I, know, I hope you can look back and you put your finger on, this is when my life pivoted because I put my trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. If not, that's the most important thing you need to think about today. Christ died for you to save you. And um, you need to take that step of faith. I hope that you have. And if you have, I hope that you'll remember it. You'll reflect on it. You'll think about all that your life means because of it. And you'll go back to the cross often. Because reminding ourselves often of the gospel equips us to live lives that are different in a hard world. And the last one is this. Be as faithful to Jesus as he has been to you. Because he deserves a lot more than we often give. That last little poem that Paul talks on there, the first three phrases uh, you kind of expect, they, they read the way that you would expect them to read. The, rest, the last one, though, stands out as different. And when that happens, often it is because that couplet is intended to be uh, the point. And the point at the end is, sometimes we're not as faithful to God as we should be. But he will always be faithful to us. You can count on that. So here's the thing I want you to remember. Um, in the prickliest moments of life, you know, when you get too close to the porcupines of fictitious uh, journeying, in the prickliest moments of life, God's grace is sufficient. Lean on His grace, and He'll give you the strength to disciple the next generation, to do the hard things, that bring a smile to his face and to discover the motivation that will keep you walking with Jesus for the rest of your days. That is possible. In fact, it is what God wants. And he promises amazing grace to pull it off. Hey, let's uh, pray and we're going to sing that song. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for every person here, the stuff we're able to think about and encounter together this morning. And as we close with a very familiar song, I pray awareness of your grace would echo in our hearts. You do promise to give us all we need to navigate every piece of this life. It starts with salvation, but it's just the start. And so, Lord, today, help us take with us a reminder of your grace and then use that in Jesus' name.